You're listening to Your Pod and Your Staff, the podcast of College Life Christian Fellowship at UC Davis. I am Peter Nittler, the college pastor of First Baptist Church in Davis, California, and our mission is to shape college-age people from all spiritual starting points into complete and equipped agents of King Jesus. And on this podcast, we want to have conversations that will accompany our Tuesday night Zoom gatherings, and we hope that they form you, encourage you, maybe even make you laugh, and that they would be a source of King Jesus guiding you through this time. And sometimes in these conversations, I sort of think I know what we're doing and where we're going, and then along the way, the conversation itself opens me up to a different way of seeing, a different way of putting all the pieces together. And this is one of those times, actually. So I asked Bronwyn Lee to come talk to us about what really is actually the second half of a two-part miniseries dealing with questions that, at its most crass, is really, is the Bible sexist? And last week, Steve Luxa talked about the role of women in church, and Bronwyn has come in to talk about gender roles in marriages. And so she's dealing with some of the texts that seem to paint a picture of a husband who is the assertive leader and the wife who is the submissive follower, which maybe just doesn't quite sit right with us. And there tends to be two sides of this. There's the complementarians who want to keep these gender distinctions in marriage, and then there's the egalitarians who are anxious to see this hierarchy smoothed out. And I thought this would be a conversation where we sort of landed on one of those two views, and maybe it feels like that as you're listening, but I actually think that Bronwyn's analysis and the way she's looked at and worked with these texts actually brings us out of this binary sort of pick-a-side kind of thinking and actually leads us to something that to me feels much more satisfying and that it feels more fundamental. It feels more obviously coming straight from the consistent kingdom way of self-sacrifice, humility, and counting others more significant than yourselves. And a quick note just about Bronwyn's audio. There was a little issue recording her sound, so you'll be hearing the Zoom recording, and we're sorry about that, but I still think you're going to love the episode. So we talk about these texts. We look at some of the difficult things that sort of just jump off the page and also start to ask, like, what does this functionally mean in marriages? Who makes the decisions? Who is leading? Who is following? And does it matter? And I think you might be surprised at the answers. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to your pod and your staff. Uh, I would like everyone everywhere, wherever they are, uh, if they happen to be on a run, a walk, gardening, taking out the trash, doing the dishes, staring at your ceiling, whatever, I'd like for you to say hello to Bronwyn Lee, our guest this morning. She says hello to you. She waved, which uh, it's not not a visual medium. It's actually an audio medium. So I would love for Bronwyn, maybe for you to say hello to our audience. <laughs> Hi, everybody. <laughs> What, did we get off on the wrong foot? <laughs> you told everybody who was washing dishes to wave hello to me. I didn't think it was my turn to talk yet, but no, I, you know, I I'm understand. just submitting to you as the podcast host. Oh, I understand. Yeah, yeah. Apropos for the conversation. Roman, <laughs> you know what's kind of fun? You are Tom Hanks. That I have never been described as before. Please explain yeah. why. <laughs> uh, well, I, Tom Hanks. I thought prior to my Google search this morning, uh, has hosted SNL the most times. Turns out John Goodman has hosted SNL the most times, but I'm still going to call you Tom Hanks because I would would rather be Tom Hanks. I don't know what you think. He's a delightful character. Yeah, he's wonderful. You are a toy. Remember that? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I'm not from here, remember. You need to go easy on the American cultural. That's true. But you've seen, have you seen Toy Story? Yes. Cool. Yeah. Yes. Well, he's hosted SNL 10 times, and now you are the most prolific, your pod and your staff guest. If you count Stanford as a co-host, you are, uh, you've been a guest the most times. Oh my which means, goodness. Yeah. 
we must be doing something right because I love having conversations with you. I love hearing your thoughts on things. And I'm thinking that today is going to be no different. But welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. I am a fan of the podcast. I've been enjoying listening to other people's interviews and talks and insights. And it's very special to get to be a guest. That's very, very kind of you. And I am particularly excited about this conversation, I will say. And I would love to start with a little bit of honesty, if you'll allow me. Please. Opening, bearing my soul to you. I feel like in the two days before every podcast, I start to really feel what I feel about the topic. I think, you know, when we're making the schedule, it's all kind of ideas. And then right before we're about to record, I start to really think about it's. I I don't even try to think about it. It just sort of seeps through me. And I'm like, oh, this is. I'm feeling a certain way about this. And I, I'm feeling a mixture of excitement and sort of nerves about this one. And I was kind of processing through it a little bit why. And I think it is this, is that there's a lot of hard things to read in the New Testament. And I am rarely on the side of people for whom it is hard. You can see, again, this is not a visual medium, but you can see that I am a waspy man. I am white Anglo-Saxon Protestant man. And so the, the hard stuff in the New Testament, um, the hard stuff in the epistles are rarely having to do with me. A lot, you know, last week we talked with Steve about women in ministry. That's an int- that's a conversation that I can be sort of disturbed by in a certain way, but it doesn't, you know, I if I want to be a pastor, I can be a pastor at any church that I choose, you know. In the conversations about slavery, you know, obviously slavery in this particular country, like I wasn't oppressed in that way, nor were my ancestors, right? And you can say the same thing about this conversation. What we're talking about today is what the epistles have to say, what Paul has to say about, and Peter, about gender roles, uh, particularly in marriage. And you could say, well, the really hard stuff to hear is the submission stuff for women. Like, that doesn't feel right to us. That doesn't sound right. And and I, I guess to tip my hand, I, it, it doesn't sound right coming out of my mouth either. But then there's also... I don't I don't want to play the victim or anything, but there's a sense in which I don't like what this stuff has to say about me. Like, I feel like it's putting onto me something that I don't want to be. And the picture that's painted often, if you just say, what does the New Testament have to say about marriage? You know, maybe a rough image would be a, a leading husband and a submissive wife. And I get, I paint this picture of what a leading husband must be, he must be assertive. He must be decisive and, you know, future thinking. And, you know, if I think about my natural tendencies and what I tend to be like, I feel like I have the gifts and the temperament of a helper and not a relational leader like that. I am much more comfortable in the reacting mode and the supporting mode than I am the leading and asserting mode. And so I've always been nervous that I'm wrong you know, that just who I am and, and like the baseline of me is, is not what I'm supposed to be. And I've had conversations where people have insinuated that like, yeah, I think you are kind of sinning in a way by, by not sort of taking up this mantle. And so this conversation will be a theological one, you know, just like we've had and personal too. But it, it, I think I'm communicating that this one feels a little more personal to me even in a way that I didn't even necessarily realize until we almost sat down and talked about it. So I'm just curious, like, does that sound surprising to you? And and I'm curious also to know what is your emotional register about all this stuff before we dive in? Well, it makes me chuckle a little bit, to be honest, Um, because yes, on this one, you have skin in the game. That's right. That's what I'm trying to say. That would have been, yeah, you just said it in two seconds and I said it in four minutes. So that's part of the function of privilege, right? That you only really have to think about stuff where it involves you. (laughs) Whereas I feel like this has been part of uh, sort of my thinking and my world, both vocationally and relationally, probably for a long time. Mm -hmm. And yes, there's a lot of theology that has been 
said and debated, but I do think that the really big issue for me at this stage, and it sounds like for you as well, is that we feel relational weight to this conversation. Mm -hmm. We want to be people who love well. We also want to be authentic to who we are as God has made us. And if you are someone with particular leadership skills and you're a woman, or if you're someone who has a gift of helps, does that mean you're not being a biblical man? We have some real identity questions about how this shakes out. And absolutely, it's right that we care about them. And mm-hmm. we put some effort into figuring that out. Yeah. You said succinctly again, what I was hoping to communicate was that I'm realizing that it just does feel different mm-hmm. when you when you do have skin in the game and how much I've realized that I haven't. You know, again, like these conversations can be interesting to have sort of from my perspective, but nothing feels put on me. And, and this one feels a little bit put on me. And I do think I've had to wrestle with like, what kind of man am I if I'm not this man? And is that an okay man to be? And so anyway. That's just really kind of what I wanted to say at the top, and I feel grateful for for your response. But what if we were to just start with the text? What if we were to just to dive in and, and get going? And I've tasked you with the task of leading us through some of these texts that the New Testament has to say, the epistles have to say about gender roles, wives and husbands. It's often the heading. So can you just take us in, and we'll see what we can glean just from reading the texts and, and how we interpret them. Sure thing. There are three main passages in the New Testament that deal with the relationship between husbands and wives particularly. And Mm -hmm. it is, I must say, almost exclusively those three passages that I heard people talk about when they were trying to understand marriage and what it meant to be married, just in general, what to expect. So the first of those is in Ephesians 5, the second in Colossians 3, and then there's a a shorter passage in 1 Peter 3. Mm -hmm. Um, And they bear some similarities, all three of these passages. They, they come within the context of each of these being a letter where at the beginning of the letter, there is sort of a vision for something of what it means to live the, the Christian life. You know, Ephesians mm-hmm. has this big picture of God's new humanity in Christ with a, a, an eternal perspective on what this is like. And then those first three chapters switch into application in chapter four and say, so basically this is what it's going to look like in, in practice. This is what yeah. it's going to look like in your speech, in your behavior, and in a transformed set of relationships. In mm-hmm. your master-slave relationships, this is what it will look like. In your household, this is what it will look like for husbands and wives and for children and whatnot. And Colossians follows the same pattern. You know, you, <laughs> Christ is everything. This is how you're seated in him. You're complete in him. And then this is what it looks like in practice. And again, there's a passage that deals with slaves and sort of how to frame your earthly relationships with all of its tangles and troubles and power relationship, you know, the the power grid, how to Mm -hmm. frame that theologically in a way that's helpful and transformative from the inside. So lots of stuff on slaves, which we're not going to touch today so much, but then again, turning again to parts of the household, the economic part, the spouse, the kids, how that works out. And first Peter has a similar kind of pattern. It's worth noticing the pattern. Yeah, I was going to say, what, I wonder what the pattern, what does that do for how you understand the whole, the fact that there's this pattern? You know what I mean? <laughs> right. So, you know, at the beginning, you threw out a line about Tom Hanks and SNL and uh, right. a quote, and your readers listening immediately have a frame of reference. Your listeners think, oh, I know who you're talking about. I can picture his face. Yeah. I know what show you're talking about. Yes, I've seen that movie. They can contextualize it. Well, readers of the First Testament letters at the time reading these letters, hearing them spoken, would immediately have been able to identify that 
we were talking about what was called the household code. Right. They would immediately have been able to frame what it was that they were hearing. Mm-hmm. And a household code in Greco-Roman times was a set of living conduct rules, how your household, how your little mini oikos, as they were calling it in Greek, was organized. Yeah. And in the Roman world, it was all organized under your paterfamilias, your one one man (laughs) with all the power who rules all the things, right? And all the employees, the slaves in the house uh, belonged to the paterfamilias and the wife also Mm -hmm. property of the the paterfamilias. I mean, that just means father of the family, but nobody else had any legal rights. Nobody else owned any property. They were all his property. And then there's just a set of rules and regulations and obligations that go with what happens in this particular house of the my house, my rules, part of familias. And so this has the shape, but it's almost like a parody, you know, in the sense of if this was like a weird Al Yankovic song, you immediately know what song he's riffing because the music sounds the same and the phrasing is the same, but the wording is all switched up. And it makes you pay attention because he's actually saying something a little different. And what we see in the household codes is, yes, everybody would have recognized the pattern of this is we were talking about slaves and wives and children and everybody that's under a roof in a household. But gosh, the content is different. Yeah. The Weird Al Yankovic, I got to tell you, did that, was that off the top of your head? Yes. That is incredible. <laughs> that's so good. So, what, okay, let me see if I know what you're saying. So, you're saying that, that these like, household codes just sort of exist. Like people know that this is – it's a familiar pattern and it's familiar content and it's sort of a style too. And then so what Paul is doing and what Peter are doing or what what's happening in the epistles is that they're using like basically the household code form and then just like remixing the content, which would probably be all the more striking, right? Right. Because we're both Hamilton fans. Is it a little bit like when – is it in the Schuyler Sisters? I don't quite remember. But when they quote the Declaration of Independence, right? And then have the line about women being in the sequel. Mm-hmm. It's like we all, if we've gone through civics, whatever, it's like we download all of the Declaration of Independence and then realize, oh, like with that little line, it's so striking because we know it so well. That's right. And it's not in there in the, in the first place. So it's, it's a subversion a little bit. It is. And actually, that's yeah. a great example because these days when we read the Declaration of Independence, you know, that all men are created equal, we read into it. That means women too. But at the time, right. that was not the case. Oh, that's interesting. So we infer it now. But is that because has it, been, it hasn't been stated? Has someone said it means men and women or are we just inferring that well, from our- Well, the Supreme our... Court has decided that subsequently, but that's not what the original writers were thinking. They just they just weren't thinking that way. They were right. thinking people of color, although right. subsequently we've come to say that that is truer to the intention. That's the way it should be applied yeah. and implied. So there is always this work that has to be done with the intention of the author, the principle that it's enshrining how it played out then, how it was heard then, how it plays mm-hmm. out and is heard now. And that's part of the work of interpretation if we're going right. to live in a functional community. so Yeah. And so you're saying that before the remix, Household Codes, it was the unofficial or official law of the land was sort of this paterfamilias, which have you seen, O Brother, Art Thou? Long time ago. I really yeah. like the soundtrack. Yes. I love the soundtrack. But George Clooney's character always says – he. He calls himself paterfamilias, so I'm picturing George Clooney saying that. Um, I'm, I'm paterfamilias. <laughs> but, and I guess you could just say also it's just highly patriarchal, that the man had mm-hmm. the power. And so if in a marriage, you know, the man had the power. And so if the husband were to die or if there would be a divorce or something, it wasn't a splitting of assets. It was just the 
oh. woman or ex-wife or the widow had had nothing. Had no power. Yeah, she it was, was all asset. centered on. <laughs> right. She was an asset. Right. And same with children and same with slaves, that's essentially. Right. So that's the cultural context we're dealing with. That's right. Which, mm-hmm. which must be assumed. We must get that in our heads. I think probably, I guess you can tell me if you think I'm wrong, but like when we come to these texts thinking that it's our culture, they sound a certain way, mm-hmm. you know? But when we come to these texts thinking about it from the paterfamilias culture, right. they also probably, to those people, sounded a certain way and... It's pretty opposite of maybe how we hear it now. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm wondering, do you want to dive into any of these yeah, sure. texts? So, just to so take let's a look? just do a little example here. I was raised in the faith in my college years in thinking yeah. about these things, going through these texts really closely. And my takeaway in being taught these things was that Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, and 1 Peter 3 were teaching two things. One was about how power and decision-making was structurally organized or should be in a Christian marriage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then that there was some verbs that went along with that. Okay. <laughs> okay. They start with S. So wives yeah. were to submit. And then I was told, and you actually said this in the introduction, that husbands were to lead. Mm-hmm. So those were the verbs that were going to go along right. with this power structure. Yeah. That's certainly like the image that I have in my head of like what I grew up with. Thinking, that's right. You know? Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then I think, I don't know where we even got this from. I had a bunch of assumed applications of what that would look like should one Mm -hmm. ever marry. And it usually had this kind of, well, the husband would be a mini prophet, priest, or king of the family, that he would lead family devotions, that he would take the lead in prayer in some kind of way, and basically would like be pastoring in the house. Right, a little house pastor. That's right. And Mm -hmm. that my job, uh, if I was to be a wife, was to be like the world's most faithful Bible study attender and <laughs> obedient, but not like a child, right. but question mark as to how different that would be. <laughs> right. <laughs> In reviewing then these passages later, and I did a lot of thinking about what does it mean to honor? Because the Bible talks about honor, right? And it does mean to esteem worth, to value, mm-hmm. to really respect a person's responsibilities, and role mm-hmm. and the, the task that they have. What does submission mean? And submission actually is a very interesting word. Submission is something you do to yourself. It's a verb which mm. means to appoint yourself under the authority or leadership of another. I see. So in other words, you can't make anyone else submit. They have to, by themselves, as a verb functional on their own person, choose to submit, appoint themselves, put themselves underneath yeah. another person. What would be the forceful version of that? Because like, there seems like there's a way of thinking about, I'm going to force you under me. Yeah. You know? I mean, we can always subject people. Yeah, I guess that would be that would be something like that. But a su- a submission is a, a voluntary mm-hmm. respect, a voluntary right. Yeah, honor. Okay, that's interesting. And understood that way, that is actually something very consistent with teaching in the scriptures, which is always telling us to consider other people better than ourselves, to put ourselves mm-hmm. in the position of servant, and where appropriate, to put ourselves in respect under other people's authority in whatever yeah. context that may be. We are all, in some way, people in submission yeah. to a situation. Right now, I am submitting to you as the leader of this podcast host. It's your rules and I'm right. going to follow follow them, right? Mm-hmm. And so the word, that verb became a little bit less threatening the more that I looked into uh, its context. But then I was still wrestling with 
the hmm, what does it mean this whole leadership and submission question in in actually worked out absolutely right? this is this is the question <laughs> of the day for me yeah. yeah okay well there's two two things that i want to say about this one is how i came to the conclusion uh, from the scriptures that this passage is not teaching a power structure for marriage hmm. and the other thing that I would love us to talk about is why I don't think it matters very much for the actual quality of our marriages. Okay. This is, so that's where we're, (laughs) we're, we're going to go. You're going to, you're going to tell us why you think these texts aren't saying probably what you could just read as a face value, Mm -hmm. that these are instructions for Christian marriage. And then also why they might not matter a ton Mm -hmm. for the quality of your marriage. Okay. Let's try and be concise. That's, what you're That's exactly what I'm yeah. saying. So let's try and That's be great. concise That's about great. this. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just, I'm just trying to make sure. I'm because I'm excited about that. Because I will say just at the top, even the idea of the verb that you described, the submission verb, and it being sort of a self-submission, and that being consistent with the the ethic of the cross, essentially. I guess the question I'd have is: Does that mean that all wives are supposed to do this in a way that all husbands are not? And I can guess where we're going to go with that answer because the submission verb tends to be attached to the the wife in these mm-hmm. passages. And so anyway, I'm just excited to see where we're going. But that, that was the, my, my first thought. Of like, I can see how it's like, oh, yeah, that's it makes sense within the ethic of Christianity. But then why is it relegated to one side of this equation? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That is a very fair question. Why do wives get one, one set of verbs and husbands seem to get another? Well, actually, let's right. start with this one. The verb yeah. for husbands, and this might come as a surprise, in Ephesians, Colossians, and Peter is not husbands, Lead your Lead. wives. Right. The verb is love. Right. Which is really interesting, don't you think? It is love. <laughs> I just I just looked. I just looked. <laughs> so however it is we're reading it, it's not this binary series of husbands lead, which means mm-hmm. authority role, and wives mm-hmm. submit, which means follow a role. The verb for husbands throughout is love. And sacrificial love, Jesus-shaped right. love, cross-shaped love. Right. That's not a power structure. That's a position. It's a posture. What? Because in First Peter, isn't it also show honor too? Mm-hmm. That is interesting. I, I so love to know the history of how the picture of the leader happened. But I'm seeing that very clearly. That the verb for husbands is love, mm-hmm. and the difference between love as a posture versus lead as a sort of an office. <laughs> Sets me free a little bit, at least right now. Um, <laughs> Good. I, I, <laughs> so I'm excited. Okay, so let's go to First Peter. Peter, where it has in chapter three, verse one, this instruction: Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they will be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Then it talks about your beauty, your clothing, and it encourages them not to be afraid. Mm-hmm. How I used to read this was wives submit to your own husbands, thinking, what does that mean? What does that, what does that mean? But there's a little yeah. phrase in there that's a kicker. It says wives in the same way. In the same way as what? That's like a therefore mm. in the passage, you know? Yes, you're therefore, yeah. what is it there for? That's the best. Yeah. <laughs> but wherever you see something that says likewise, or however, or finally, or for example, Mm -hmm. or in the same way, it is connecting the thought to whatever comes before. And what comes before this is chapter two, verse 18, will slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. 
mm-hmm. out of reverent fear. So whatever it is that Peter is saying in this passage about submission, he's tying it to a similar pattern elsewhere in the household. Right. Here's the thing. For consistency's sake in your hermeneutic, if you are going to make the argument that based on this passage of 1 Peter 3, or based on that similar phrasing in Colossians 3, that this is teaching that wives positionally, relationally, power structure-wise must submit to their husband as a leader or ruler of the family, then Mm -hmm. in the same way to be hermeneutically consistent, you should use these exact passages to justify slavery. Yeah, that's... Which the church has done. Right. I was going to say, it's like, that's, <laughs> we're not totally foreign to that. No. And if you read some sermons and letters and articles, particularly from the South, from like 200 years ago, that is exactly the same structure of hermeneutic and argument that people were using to justify slavery. See, hmm. this is what the Bible has called you to, slaves. Joyfully submit. Right. You are blessed if you submit with joy. <laughs> Right, right. And it was reading slavery texts and sermons justifying it that made me realize, oh my goodness, that is exactly the same hermeneutic that I grew up hearing about how to interpret these passages about men and women and husbands and wives. Right. So, okay, are you saying essentially that because these two things are tied so closely together, that the the husband and wives conversation is following a a likewise or therefore— and the therefore is this master-slave combination, that how you handle these two things should probably be similar because they're sort of being put in parallel. That would be a theologically consistent way for us to approach the scriptures. Right. And so we have, as Christendom, made mistakes in the slavery conversation, but also have identified that there must have been something about the culture of this, t- when when Paul and Peter were writing, that made this a faithful-ish way to live out the gospel. That's right. I think that we have made the mistake, both with slavery and uh, household relationships, of thinking that what this passage is doing is teaching us the structure. Okay. But what this passage does is assumes that it already knows the structure. Everybody knew what the structure was. What's radical about this passage is it's teaching people a Christ-shaped way to think about their relationships within the existing structure. Yes. So the new part here was not that slaves should submit to masters or that wives should submit to husbands. The new part is that they should do it as unto the Lord because the Lord is your husband and the Lord is your master. And the radical part here is not the structure that husbands are to care for their wives. They were supposed to do that anyway. That was their duty, Hmm. like stewardship. The radical part here is that husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. Yeah. Okay. 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 (laughs) That's really interesting. I don't know if I've ever put it or thought about it that way. So when we see these texts, it's not instructions on how to set up a family or it's not instructions on how to set up a master-slave relationship. The the issue is like the structures already exist we're going to now live into the Jesus life. We're going to live in a kingdom life in these given structures. And so that's going to change how we do it. And I'm going to tell you how we're going to change it. That's right. How we're going to sort of, we're going to, mm. we're going to adjust things. And do you get frustrated reading back into it that Paul or Peter didn't just abolish these things and just say, hey, this is just like the way it's set up right now is not good. I used to. And so to. we need to just get rid of it. <laughs> yeah, I used to. Okay. I used to. 
But scripture is written to its own time and wisdom knows how to read a room and the gospel takes different shape in whatever culture that it's in. And so even last week when you were talking with Steve about head coverings, it's the same principle at work. They lived in a culture where head coverings meant a certain thing, Mm -hmm. right? Paul is not writing a treatise on whether he thinks head coverings are a good idea. He cares about integrity and transformed gospel-shaped relationships and demeanor within Mm -hmm. whatever rules there are about head coverings, within whatever household structure there is. So Mm -hmm. he says, you know, go ahead and cover your head or don't cover your head because the point is that you don't want to bring dishonor. He's working within the system. I don't really think he has an opinion on on head coverings. He has an Mm -hmm. opinion on showing respect, not living in such a way that the scripture is brought into disrepute, which he mentions multiple times in the pastoral epistles. Right. And so if they live in an entire structure where they are trying to be winsome for the sake of Jesus, this is how to conduct yourselves. I'm absolutely Mm. sure that he was not in favor of despotic Caesars killing Christians, not championing that as a system of government. However, that is the system you live in. So as believers, how do we relate to authorities? How do we respond when we're suffering? Right. He's not baptizing the status quo in these passages. He's saying, if this is the status quo, this is how we live transformed. Were there any other times off the top of your head where he did blow up a structure, you know, and say like, this cannot be, you know, I'm, I'm sort of racking my brain and I. I think where there are sin issues, you see him do that. Yeah. Really, really clear. And and the Jew-Gentile divide. And the Jew-Gentile divide, right. Even though actually in that though, he's like, hey, you know, if you want to continue eating mm-hmm. this way, go for it. Just you need to know it's not a barrier to entry for anyone else. That's right. You know, so even that, it's less blowing it up than, than maybe we think about it. But he's not ever really a revolutionary in the, in the way of like, we need to disband this horrible system, yeah. right, and change it. And I wonder if that's, do you think it's because it was such a small fledgling movement, like they had no shot at like... No, I think it's because this is the Jesus way of transformation. Right. You know, right. Jesus doesn't come in and just bat people's behavior around. He's all about the inward work, the mustard seed. The kingdom comes right. quietly, both structurally yeah. and in us as a person. It's worked out, one choice, one decision, one commitment at a time, and in households too. What about the whole like justice delayed is justice denied idea? What about it? Let me just see if I could play this out. It's like, well, if you're not going to get rid of an evil system, mm-hmm. I don't want to hear your patience narrative. You know, I don't want to hear the, I'm not talking to you. I'm, I'm, mm. I'm thinking of the, well, I am talking to you. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, I'm, not. Uh, I'm not, you're not, I'm not, I'm not being cruel. <laughs> yeah. I'm not being cruel to you right now. Um, it's like the, Hey, let's change this. Or let's just live into this sort of patiently, slowly. Let's let's like let's live organically and in a new way. And you know, maybe even evangelistically, we could think this will be so compelling that people will see it and want to become it, or it'll start changing mm-hmm. from the neighborhoods to the cities to the you know mm-hmm. that sort of patient growth and and patient change mm-hmm. is different than. Well, it feels like the whole that that idea of justice delayed is justice denied. It's like. We need to make the change that needs to be made now. Right. Yeah, you're going to have to take that up with the creator. I mean, far be it from us to critique him for his methods. 
the disciples yeah. had issue with Jesus with about this all the time. Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? No, not really. I have a slower plan in place, you know? Right. And really, yeah. are you going to bring your kingdom about through the foolishness of preaching? It's so slow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but this yeah. is how the good Lord has chosen to to do it. And in First Peter, He specifically says, "You know, you treat this like the Lord is slow, mm -hmm. as if you you know understood slower, but you do not understand that He is patient, wanting everyone to come to repentance." See, I that makes so much sense to me, and I think I have been interrogating that impulse in myself because it's the impulse that I want to use to slow down conversations that make me uncomfortable, just the, even like the racial justice conversation, you know, it's like, and that's not what we're here to talk about, but it's like, my impulse is like this slower, patient change from the inside out kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm aware of how the fact that I'm not affected by these things mm -hmm. makes me very comfortable with patience, mm -hmm. you know, because that's sort of my impulse. And I've been learning that sometimes that's inappropriate, that there might be times for urgency. I'm just wondering how these principles work out here, because this makes a lot of sense to me, but I, I wouldn't totally blame someone for, for being frustrated that there wasn't more of an indication of like, hey, but when it's time, like, I wonder if Paul knew or even thought Paul or Peter, gosh, my, my guy Peter keeps getting left out of my listings of, of biblical authors, but if they knew like, hey, when the time comes, when this, this system has changed, you should change it. But then again, that's not, they, they weren't writing to every church, they were writing to a particular community. So I'm, I'm having a conversation with myself now. Uh, I'm like going it. back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> well, let, let me follow up here and say, the more that I realized that the household codes were not prescribing a system, but teaching me about the cruciform life within whatever system we find ourselves, mm -hmm. the more helpful I found these passages for marriage. I'm excited to hear more about that. Yeah. A question really fast. Mm -hmm. There was a, uh, a really good question at um, Zoom and Consume or Lunch Bunch last week, and it was essentially like this, this idea of sort of putting it in the context of particular cultures and that it's like sort of true in as much as it was true in that culture. And so like then when cultures change, obviously it feels like what are you left with? Are you left with the structure, kind of like what you've been sort of saying? Like are you left with this is the way it should be done for all time or are you left with, well, this is how it was done in this culture and now we got to figure out how to do it in that culture? And basically the question was very simple of like doesn't that make you nervous of like interpretation? Doesn't that, doesn't that make you mean you can sort of make it whatever you want it to be in that like you kind of think, okay, well, culture is this now. And so I guess you could say now culture is more – is not – paterfamilias culture right. is at least a little bit more. Well, mm -hmm. it is a lot more, but it's maybe not all the way, but whatever. It's like more egalitarian. It's more equal mm -hmm. than, than it was then. And so does that just mean, okay, well now we just get to live the way feels right to us in this way? No, I don't think so. Yeah. And, I'll, and I'll explain why. I was taught these passages of scripture for 20 years were teaching us a structure and my concern was that if we realized that that structure was just part of the culture as it was, and we kind of contextualized it, that these would become just empty versus like defunct yeah. with nothing left in them. However, mm -hmm. if the passage is not about requiring a structure, but the passage is about requiring Christian conduct within that structure, Mm -hmm. then what remains, even though the culture changes, is actually consistent with the messaging of the New Testament throughout, which is be a transformed person where you are at. Yeah. Serve yeah. other people where you are at. Love one another where you are at. 
Right. Consider one another as better than yourselves. Your attitude should be the same as that is in found in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 5.21, bracketing the entire passage on marriage, submit to one another out of reference for Christ. Right. That has always been so interesting to me that it feels like he's giving such individual instructions to men and to women. And then it's just like this wrap up of submit to each other. It's Actually, it's the preface. It's not the wrap up. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The preface. construction yeah, yeah. in Greek is yeah. submit to one another, taskuneo, submit to one another out of reference for Christ. And then it says wives to your husbands. It doesn't even have the verb submit in there. It's just like bullet points of how everyone right. is going to submit in their appropriate contexts. Right. And so when you realize that there is this household co code and that there's a context to it, what remains as a really, really strong and I think consistent principle is that you can see the Jesus-shaped call to character shining through out of these passages. Yeah. That husbands are yeah. called to love one another, you know, love their wives sacrificially, giving themselves up for her, cleansing her with washing in the word, presenting her faultless, praying for her, is consistent with what the rest of the New Testament teaches about being committed to one another's flourishing. It doesn't detract from these passages. You're like, oh, totally consistent. Yeah, it's pretty simply put. <laughs> you know, it's, it's pretty interesting. And that's going to bring me to my second point is... Mm -hmm. The longer that I've been married, the longer that I've read these passages, the more I realize that the structures don't really matter very much mm. because yeah. <laughs> no matter what conclusion you come to about what a wife or a husband's job should be, and I have more to say about the household versus work if you want to go there later, or uh, who makes decisions or you know, whether you're living in the first century part of familiar's world or whether you're living in the 21st century woman can be a CEO world and her husband can be the stay-at-home dad. Mm -hmm. That structure doesn't really matter. Here is what I'm persuaded of. If we are honoring one another first, committed to one another's flourishing, considering one another as better than ourselves, so, right. you know, practicing those things, I don't think your marriage will look very different from one structure to the other. Yeah. I think that really healthy complementarian marriages, you know, where there's a leader and a follower, but the husband is fully committed to, to loving his wife self-sacrificially and putting his energy into seeing her flourish and develop and use her gifts and grow into all God has to be. And I know complementarian marriages where that is the case. Right. Right. Um, right. And where the wife says, you know, you're my leader. And she has a bit of the like mini prophet priest king view, but she still wants to see him flourish wants to serve him, and they're fully committed to one another's flourishing, those marriages, I find, look very much the same as egalitarian marriages where they're one anothering, it, you know. Right. The day-to-day the -day right. functionality of Christ-likeness can work in any culture. Right. So it's, it's, I feel like it's one of those things, I feel like this has happened on the podcast before, where we take a topic that feels a little thorny and through talking it out, I feel like the conclusion on some level is like, be a Christian. Right. You know? um, Which is and, really, really comforting, even if it's a little frustrating, but <laughs> right. deeply comforting. Right. Well, it, it's, it is a little frustrating in that it feels almost like we're reducing everything to the same stuff. You're sort of getting rid of all the nuances of like, no, you don't do marriage differently than something else. You just be a Christian in marriage, you know? you Yes, like, that. Um, but at the same time, <laughs> It sort of makes sense. You know, it's like it's, there's this a pretty simple ethic 
and it's very difficult and it's a high call, but the, the ethic is pretty flexible of consider others more important than yourself and live self-sacrificially and all that stuff. On one hand, it's like, how could that not be more apropos in, in marriage? Not to say more, but appropriately apropos, Mm -hmm. appropriately apropos. What am I saying? (laughs) (laughs) Um, For, for marriage, you know, it's, it's, crucial. Just the importance of repentance and forgiveness and humility and all that stuff in marriage is so paramount that it's like those kinds of things only really come if you have a pretty substantial ethic of living for the other's flourishing and Mm -hmm. not insisting on your own way and Mm -hmm. all that stuff. The thing is, all that stuff, interestingly, sort of feels like submission. Doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It feels like the role that the wife has always had in this classic conception. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting, like the view of the the leader, the male leader, doesn't seem to fit as well to me with with that. You know, obviously it does if you were to say, well, this is this is a, a leader who's going to deeply honor and deeply love and deeply encourage and be for the flourishing. But then at that point, it's like now you're just su- submitting to that person. Now you know you're not. Yeah. It's not the view of the leader that I felt oppressed by, where yeah. it's like it has sort of has to be my way or the highway. I have to want it to be that way. Mm-hmm. I have to think that my ideas are the better ideas, like those kinds of things, which I don't necessarily think someone taught me that. I think I inherited a lot of those ideas yeah. from something, you know, so yeah. it's, I'm not denigrating the complementarian view by saying that's what they think, but it's like, that's what I was battling in my mm-hmm. own self, you know? Yeah, totally. You know, the, the one of the fascinating things to me about the way that Paul and Peter phrase these instructions to wives and husbands. And maybe it's remarkable that he addresses wives and children and servants because they would not usually have been addressed in anything. So it really, he dignifies the people without power in the time by addressing them. And then not only, you know, doing them the honor of speaking to them, but framing their relationship in reference to Christ, in reference to God. And so he says, you know, husbands, you need to love your wives like Christ loved the church and wives, you need to, you know, submit to your husbands just as you would to Christ. But what he's basically saying to both of those parties is you guys, you have the same boss. Yeah. You're both accountable to the same person here. Right. So you might think you have this like one over the other power structure, but from God's perspective, you both have one direct report. Mm Mm-hmm. And similarly, it's it's radical in Colossians and in First Peter that he says um, the same thing to slaves. You know, masters, you need to treat your slaves well because you too have a master in heaven. And slaves, you need to, you know, do well as one whose eye is on you because you are working with the Lord. Again, for a slave-master relationship, by the way, you guys both have one direct report. Right. That's to the Father. And he uses the same structure in First Peter where he says to them, and remember, this is a culture in which only men can be heirs. Only mm-hmm. men could inherit, right? Yeah. He says to the husbands in First Peter 3, be gentle with your wives, for they are co-heirs with you. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That, that's never popped for me. So there's all this just interesting theological framing where he's like flattening the heavenly org chart. Yeah. In how they think about their relationships with one another. Right, right. But then, so in Ephesians 5, mm-hmm. there's this whole headship dynamic where it feels like, I think this is something that's always been hard for me is that this feels like org language, you know, organizational language. Like, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Mm-hmm. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Mm-hmm. It feels like, it feels like hierarchical language, yeah. you know, 
Yeah, and people have argued about what that means up the wazoo, right? right many, right. many papers have been written, well, what does head mean? Does it mean the authority or does it mean the source? Are they referring back to Genesis? You know, yeah. what, is, <laughs> what right. does that mean in terms of structure? And this was one of the things that I think was a real pivotal moment in my own marriage, if we can pivot from right. scripture, is that I had been reading this passage and reading this passage and reading this passage and reading this passage to try and figure out what to do in my own marriage, Right. right. And, and this is post being married? Post being married. Yeah. Yes. Like we reach an impasse. We can't make a decision. Reading this passage, Lord, help me figure this out. Right. Here's the truth. It didn't help. Mm-hmm. This passage did not unlock the key to how couples make decisions yeah. <laughs> or how right. you conduct a conversation. So whatever it means, I thought, well, I've read the arguments both way. Maybe it's saying there's a structure, maybe it isn't. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a different way of reading it. What really is clear to me is all the other passages that talk about how to defer to one another in conversation, <laughs> right. how to prioritize one another. That's going to help us make a decision. Figuring right. out exactly what head and body means, I don't know. There's a lot of other stuff in the scripture that talks about how you can't just have truncated body parts either in your own physical body, you know, you've got right. honor the big toe, honor the ear, honor the high, you can't have a headless body. It talks about that in the book, about how you've got to honor all the parts. And it talks about that in a marriage, about the head and the body. Mm-hmm. What we really know is that those things are supposed to be attached for life-giving mutual flourishing, right? Yeah. Headless yeah. bodies don't do super well. Bodiless right. heads don't do super well. <laughs> so however those things are connected, they're supposed to be thriving. Okay, yeah. here's a bunch of other scriptures on how to help you thrive. Right. Really, really, really quickly, do you have the weaker vessel mm-hmm. phrase mm-hmm. is a tough look? Mm-hmm. And I think in having this conversation, it feels like it could be, it could fit very nicely with everything else that we've talked about. That right. this is a description of the current state of, mm-hmm. of male-female relationships, that, that women have no power. So yeah. in, in a political, social economic Mm -hmm. sense, they are the weaker vessel, you know, it's not saying something sort of ontological about women. What do you think? So as a woman, I've experienced this passage in a couple of different ways. I am, although I am pretty tall and large by womanly standards, I am smaller than my husband by a long shot. Yeah. You know, and so there is just a dynamic in which in any given situation, if a situation needs more heft, uh, he's, he's the better one for it. I am. I tend, I tend to open the tough jars right. in the house. I am, yeah. I am physically more vulnerable than him. Mm-hmm. So there is an aspect of, of that, I think, that comes out. And however, there is a, um, a social and a relational vulnerability that women sometimes experience. And I think particularly in the first century where you had no rights, no property, nowhere to go if you didn't have a husband, you were dependent on him for food, for clothing, for name, you know, <laughs> but I yeah. was in a really precarious position. Um, and if your husband got really angry with you for becoming a Christian, as was the case with First Peter 3, and decided to turn you out, you were in a bad spot. Yeah. Right? So a wife in that situation thinking, how much should I say about my new commitment to Jesus? Right. It's going to make him angry. Am I going to lose my house? <laughs> I am really vulnerable situationally over here. Peter's yeah. encouragement is, yes, I see that you are weaker you've got much less in your basket. Here is what you do. Keep submitting to him. Don't be afraid. Hmm. You know, Sarah knew exactly what this felt like. 
she was living in a culture where she also had no power and had to go along with her husband who thought it would be a good idea to pass her off as his sister and marry her to the pharaoh. Okay, that's frightening (laughs) if you don't get uh, the power of veto, (laughs) you know? You're not the first woman to feel situationally vulnerable, but you can trust God in this. Yeah, Your godliness or your demeanor in this relationship will make a difference, can make a difference. Right. So again, I don't think it's saying, wives, you better walk around calling your husband Lord. It's saying, (laughs) whatever context you're in, there might be situations where you feel pretty powerless over what's happening right now. Right. And that does not give us a pass Mm -hmm. to all of a sudden check out of our mutuality and our commitment and our covenant with one another. Right. Now, I experienced this passage very differently for the 10 years that I was a dependent visa holder in the United States, dependent on Jeremy's visa. Right. So pretty much from the time I turned 30 until maybe just one or two months after my 40th birthday, I could not legally work in the U.S. Right. At all. And if Jeremy was to get hit by a bus or was to lose his job, I could not stay here. Get hit by a bus and die. If he was right. to die. Yeah. Yeah. If, if he, he got hit by a bus or if he and was lived, you could have stayed here. Yeah. Um, no, because if he didn't have a job, we could. Oh, interesting. Again. Yeah. Right. 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 Sorry. So my my concern about him, you know, if he was to die prematurely, I would be left in a country with dependents with mm-hmm. no ability to keep them here, mm-hmm. or to support them, or to work. Right. And my visa status was dependent on his job and how quickly he was going to do the paperwork for the our permanent residency application. And I would have loved him to go faster on that. It took us six years. Right. Now, how do I stay married well in those six years where I am wishing that he would do something a little faster that is only in his power to do? I cannot do that application form. That's not within my purvey. And yet my entire existence here, my economic ability, my where Mm. I can live, what I can do is attached to the womb of my husband and his timing on when he feels like getting his paperwork sorted out. I came back to First Peter 3 a number of times. Really? Mm-hmm. Because the temptation to give way to fear in a situation when you feel vulnerable yeah. and out of power is really big. Right. It's really huge. And the idea that the scriptures saw me in that situation of dependency. And there's all sorts of ways we could be, you know, in a vulnerable dependent situation. We could be dependent on an employer or a spouse or be at the mercy of a country. You could be a refugee refugee camp. And how do we handle our fear, our trust in our relationships when we have little choice? I think the scriptures spoke powerfully to me in that, not because it was baptizing the situation, but because it had real compassion on someone in this situation. It's really fun to talk about this stuff because it's like, in what way is that sort of the the classic example of, when I say classic example, meaning like the formulation I laid out at the beginning of like the leading husband and the uh, it's like, he's the decision maker, he's the assertive one, and then the the wife who follows. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's probably a way of reading the story you just told of like, you just have to wait until your controlling husband is ready to do the paperwork. <laughs> You know, which well, is certainly not what in, I'm envisioning. In that you know, situation. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, but also in a marriage, there's mutuality and honesty mm-hmm. and truth telling and mm-hmm. forgiveness and repentance and all that stuff. So, I guess the question would be like, how did you? Certainly, you made your wishes known on some level, 
and then also had to deal with being kind and patient and sure. generous. And so, yeah. So I think it's a reductionist view to say that absolutely that was the one <laughs> yeah. decision in which I was the weak vessel, right? And um, that was figuring out our paperwork and that situation of dependency was one of 10,000 decisions that we needed to come to in those 10 years. Yeah. And those were not all within my husband's responsibility. I'm not right. vulnerable to him on the grocery list and parenting. There's so mm-hmm. much collaboration. There's just people make so many decisions together that aren't about who wears the pants. They're just about what's going to work and what's going to serve your family better Mm -hmm. at the end of the day. I think what um, perhaps Jeremy did not realize is how afraid and vulnerable I felt in that situation. Mm -hmm. It was irritating paperwork to him. Yeah. Um, But this passage, like Peter spoke to husbands, reminds husbands that their wives might have vulnerabilities and concerns that they're not aware of because they're not experiencing them. Like he kind of addresses male privilege in that regard and says, Hey guys, right. <laughs> consider your wives. Like she doesn't have all of the choices you have. You might want to be respectful. She's, yeah. she's weaker in the situation. So you need to give her extra honor and listen to it. Right. But yeah, we make many, many, many decisions that did not have to do with paperwork. And if we just read read First Peter three to say, you see, she was the weaker vessel, and his was the paperwork, and that's the structure. That's really missing the bulk of our lives, right. you know, which are decision making wise, responsibility wise, apportioned according to gifting and availability and opportunity, and and honestly, for really hard decisions, usually Jeremy and I sort those out according to who cares more about the result. <laughs> Yeah. Well, this is what I'm so, okay. So if we like back up a little bit, I forgot to like signpost our sections, but ideally, (laughs) ideally in these, uh, in this conversation, we want to do exegesis at the top, which leads us to why a Jesus at the bottom. And so to go back up to exegesis for a second, Mm -hmm. because we were, we were going into why a Jesus. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Why Jesus, right. Why a Jesus. Yeah. One of the things that I have been compelled by is just like this sort of functional question of like, Mm -hmm. what is the functional difference if you take even just first Peter of being subject to and showing honor to, you know, like what is, how does it functionally play out in any, any real difference? You could, you could sort of quibble about what the words mean, Mm -hmm. but it's like, okay, when you're living a life, when you're living in in a marriage, in a relationship, like what is the functional difference between those two things? And, you know, I think there's a way that complementarians, people who like want to maintain this these d- distinct roles will say that it comes down to like the the breaking of the deadlock hypothetical mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where you know there if the mutually respectful husband and the wife cannot come to a decision together then the husband is to cast the deciding vote you mm-hmm. know and right. i i suppose that could be granted i'm just curious does that ever happen you know how often does that happen is that happened has that has that kind of thing happened in your marriage where it's like you just cannot come to a mutual decision and so Someone has to come to a vote. Uh, someone has to just like make the decision. And because, you know, the hierarchy or whatever, that Jeremy's vote gets to matter more. That doesn't sound like what you're describing. Mm-mm. And so has has that moment ever happened where you like to break the deadlock, someone has to decide. And then how has that happened? You know? Yeah. The short answer is no, it has never happened. Right. In 17 years of marriage, we have never, ever reached a point of, I think one should do this. You think we should go a different way you're the one not wearing a bra, you decide. Like that's, that is not how that has shaken down. Which goes to your point of like, maybe this stuff doesn't matter 
yeah. in the same way we in the way we think it does. Yeah. So when you say, you know, what functional difference does this make, the honor and submit? After all of these years of studying the Bible and reading it and trying to understand it and being married, here is my answer. I don't know. Right. I don't know what difference that makes. Like the difference between honor and submit. I'm trying to honor him and submit to him all the time. And he's trying to honor me and submit to me and care about me all the time. Right. And and I don't know how to pause the percentages of that and especially how to pause the percentages of that when it comes to picking pain color or how to discipline our children. Right. 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 Um, we maybe don't want to be an example to the rest of the world about this, but let me tell you what happens when Jeremy and I reach deadlock on a decision. Usually we land up just not deciding. <laughs> we just quit. <laughs> We're like, oh, well, <laughs> if, we can't, right. if we can't figure it out, we'll wait and maybe we'll care about it differently. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> like that, which is kind of like a not answer, but that's just how it's worked. I guess, in our marriage, or yeah. we land up deciding, and I've, I've mentioned this before, we land up deciding on who cares more about it. Mm -hmm. There are certain things in our marriage where Jeremy has more gifting than I do. Actually, there's a lot of things in our, in our family that Jeremy has more gifting in, but I care more about them, right? right. And mm -hmm. so he might be better at, you know, designing a new solution for the laundry area, Yeah, but it's really low on his priority list. Mm -hmm. And so if we wait for him to decide on the design of it, it'll take a year, but mm -hmm. I need something now. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm going to do the work, I will decide on the design on it. And if you really feel strongly about it, you can do it again in a year's time, because that's yeah. just how it's going to work. Right? I just care right. more about it right now. So I'm going to do it. And he too has had things that he just cares more about it. And he yeah. asks for my help or doesn't ask for my help, but we're trying to serve one another and serve the church, serve King Jesus in partnership. Yeah. And I sometimes have more time, more energy, more resources, more passion for a thing. And he sometimes has more time, more passion, more energy, more resources for it. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to figure it out that way. I got married firmly adhering to a complementarian view. I was going to be a wife who submitted and Jeremy was going to be a husband who led. Yeah. And I'm not sure what we thought that would look like, but I did come in with all sorts of expectations that he was going to be a spiritual leader, be a spiritual director, that he was going to, at the end of the day, say, come and sit with me and let us pray together out loud. Like, as it turned out, Jeremy, after we got married, was the same person as Jeremy before we got married. And he still did not like praying out loud in groups. That marriage yeah. did not turn him into someone who wanted to pull people into a prayer huddle. <laughs> And I don't know where I got the expectation that him leading in marriage as a husband was all of a sudden going to pull this behavior out of him, but he was frustrated and I was frustrated. And at some point I thought, where did I get this from? Yeah. This expectation that we were going to make this like lifelong musical symphony, but he was going to be the conductor and I was going to be like first string violin. Mm -hmm. and at some point realized, nah, we're in a duet. Like both of yeah. us need to do our practicing and we get to play together. But if I keep on waiting for him to be the conductor, where did I get that idea from? Right. It's just right. not, that's not how good duets work. And we'd been married for about 10 years. And I'd been reading more about the, the leadership and submission, realizing how much of the other scripture talks just about marriage is one of a number of Christ-shaped relationships. It's not a different category of relationship. Just like I've talked about dating is not a new set of rules about how to be with people. It's just the application of some general rules and ditto with marriage. Yeah. And I got into bed one night, I think we'd been married maybe 10 or 11 years. And I said to him, I want you to know that I think I'm not a complementarian anymore <laughs> because <a> <laughs> I just don't see how it's serving us. 
Like I've just run out of energy to defend that line because I can't see the difference that it makes. Yeah. And he said, like he was reading or something, looked up and he was like, oh, <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> right. And I said to him, I don't think it's going to change anything in our marriage. Yeah. I'm just telling you that I've run out of energy for trying to, f- to figure out the exact decision-making lines. I've spent so much energy trying to pause the exact words. And what I've discovered after 10 years of marriage is that wasn't helping us. There was all this other stuff that we needed to learn about how to love and honor and submit to one another anyway. And I think we're doing okay in that, even if we haven't yeah. figured out the technical fine point. Yeah. So I'm just going to yeah. give that up and let's just be married. And he was like, oh, okay. <laughs> That's so, that's that's so interesting. I, as you're talking, I'm sort of realizing that for me, I think that I have gotten over the need to be like the assertive, decisive, mm-hmm. you know, male leader, and so I've sort of gone through that tunnel and come out feeling a little more free of like, no, like it's a it's a sort of mutual submission. It's sort of all that we've described, mm-hmm. and I'm, but I'm also realizing sort of in the what you're like the who's going to do the laundry room design. part of part of life it's like katie is always doing that stuff Mm -hmm. she just cares she cares about it you know Mm -hmm. and she's good at it and i take no initiative in those (laughs) i take no initiative in those things and i think that there's something to be said to me and other people i'm sure that submission can look a lot like passiveness Mm. and i think i can not submit to Katie by overly submitting to Katie. You know, I can, and I'll try to parse that. Like, I think Katie would would sort of love to have a mutual passion about those kinds of mm-hmm. decisions, you know, or mm-hmm. like, you know, whenever, when we've gone on trips and stuff, she's always done the, like, the research and the planning and the, mm-hmm. the dreaming about that stuff. And I have benefited so much from that. Like sometimes we talk about like when she's, when she's done the planning for the trip, I get to show up and I've never seen that waterfall before because mm-hmm. I didn't Google the images, mm-hmm. you know? And so I get to like, she's like pay, like setting this table for us, but to have this great time. But then I get to experience it in like all its grandeur and she's like in all the nitty gritty stuff. And, you know, I guess I'm wondering for, I'm doing some self-therapy right now a little bit, you know, but it's like submission or mutual care and all that Mm -hmm. stuff doesn't just mean don't insist on your way or something like that, you know, or it doesn't mean just do what the other person wants to do. It's like, I, now it's like, I guess it's like, if it's, if it's like, what's the given context, how do you Mm -hmm. live like Jesus into this context? Mm -hmm. I think our, our marriage, like Katie is just more decisive. Katie is more, she's a, a dreamer in a much more substantial way than, than I am. I am really, really good at making every day kind of interesting, you know, like I'm just sort of here and now what's going on here and now, what can we do? That's going to be fun or funny or all that stuff. But I think it would bless her if I cared a little bit more about thinking about what do we need to, Mm -hmm. what do we as a family need to be thinking about, Mm -hmm. you know, not because I'm the man, but because I'm married to her and she would love to have that Totally. Um, as part of our relationship, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think it is worth talking about the fact that these passages warn us against the fact that whatever structure we're in has pet sins, ways that we can like abuse whatever right. structure that we're in. And so we've seen a lot of this within really hierarchical patriarchal systems. There is like significant possibility for abuse and bullying you know, just an, an over leveraging of power and, and scripture critiques that, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> critiques harshness, yeah. critiques 
lording authority over one another. Jesus Uh said, not so with you. You are not supposed to lord authority over one another in whatever context you're in. So that's one of the the pet sins, I guess, of um, overdoing it on the the patriarchal complementarianism side. But if you go the full egalitarian side, I think that one of the pet sins can be just apathy, checking out. And of reading mm-hmm. submission as a passive disengagement or not caring. Right. And submission does not mean passive disengagement. Mm-hmm. Submission is an active leaning in to supporting someone else in their role and calling. Right. Or right. their responsibilities, whatever. <laughs> Which you whatever can imagine the be. skills needed for mm-hmm. that are empathy. You know, mm-hmm. really understanding yeah. what your partner wants, needs, is looking for, and what will make them thrive, what will help them thrive, mm-hmm. and a selflessness to do something mm-hmm. about that, even if it's not your mm-hmm. particular bent. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like you, all those skills start to feel a lot like Philippians 2, right? Like right. consider mm-hmm. others more important than yourselves, and I think we talked about right. Count others' interests higher than your own, that kind of stuff. There's a huge difference between saying to someone, oh, I see you have gifts, calling, or leadership. Have at it. Right. And saying, you have gifts, calling, or leadership skills. Go for it. Right. Yeah. (laughs) I'm behind you. Yeah, totally. Right? Totally. And honoring and submitting and loving our partner means leaning in to cheer them on in their space, not checking out so that they can do it by themselves. Right. Did you find just this is nitty gritty? Did you find that for you and Jeremy, most of the stuff that ended up becoming your responsibility or ended up becoming his responsibility was pretty seamless? Like it just sort of happened? How much of it was decided upon? Like Katie basically does the laundry and I generally do the dishes. You know, I, we never decided that. It just sort of happened. Mm. Or on the trips, like Katie does all the like planning and then I do most of the day-to-day stuff of the trips. Like I may, I'm thinking about the transitioning the money and the, you know, those kinds of things, you know, and, but we never decided, Hey, you be the planner. I'll be the executor. You know, it yeah. just sort of happened. I think one of the things that happens um, in relationships in general and in marriage is that you fall into some kind of pattern based on your expectations. And then mm-hmm. where you discover that there's a gap that neither of you had an expectation or that you have a crash Uh, that both of you had some conflicting expectation, you discover that you need to disagree and talk, talk that through. Um, And there's so many of them, you know, uh, the, and they change over time. Mm -hmm. You know, Jeremy, I used to cook together. That used to be something that we did early in our marriage Mm -hmm. when he was then in grade school and we had little kids I did most of the cooking because the kids needed to eat earlier than he was coming home and we couldn't spend an hour cooking together while we debriefed our day. And Mm -hmm. so for several years, I was the primary cook, but in quarantine, Jeremy's at home working, I'm at home working. And now all five of us are kind of taking turns cooking and it's changed over time. Yeah. Yeah. Also, he has all of these mad meat cooking skills. So Sometimes I might delay making dinner just a little longer in the hope that he will produce something better quality than I would have, which right. he always does. Yeah, yeah. He's, a he's really actually one of my inspirations. <laughs> he's one of my inspirations, and I mean that very honestly. Yeah. Because he could just like, it's like, hey, Jeremy, can you make pulled pork for like 80 people? He's like, uh, yeah, when do you need it? When, when, when could it be? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that probably wraps up our, our, our conversation, our time. I did want to say one last thing, because I think this surprised me a little bit, even though I think I probably 
probably knew it all along, but it just it came to clarity. I can imagine that people were thinking, oh, what Brahman and Peter are going to do are going to show us the complementarian view and then show why the egalitarian view is better. And I actually don't think that's what happened in this conversation. I think what happened was what exactly what you said, and I'm just sort of waking up to it. It's like, I don't think it matters. Functionally, it ends up not mattering that much what view you have of this mm-hmm. theologically. And then also, again, it, it sort of goes back to how are you going to live like a Christian in mm-hmm. this, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's kind of refreshing to not be arguing for or against complementarianism or egalitarianism, but to be, I don't know, sort of, it feels more fun, fundamental to sort of the conclusion Right. Uh, the, the way we've had the conversation. Yeah, you know? I, I, I think the fundamental question that the scriptures ask us in marriage and in life is, are you loving people well? Yeah, yeah, it's like a first thing, second things. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I just wanted to say that. Hopefully it was implicit, but I wanted to be explicit about that. And if it's okay with you, I'd love to transition to America's favorite segment, which is Quarantine, quarantine Corner. Quarantine Corner. <laughs> quarantine Corner. I'm excited about my Quarantine Corner because I feel like there's a little bit of it that you will like. So I'm going to go first. Is that is that okay with you, my friend? I can't wait. So Mason's just growing up. He's getting a little bigger, understanding more. And uh, so after his nap, sometimes we will watch like 10 minutes of Cars. The uh, he love he's obsessed with all cars and trucks and just 100 obsessed. And so we're we're like, oh, we have Disney Plus. <laughs> The movie Cars is on it. It's literally all Cars. And so we've been watching it. And it's – I got to say it's incredible. And I feel like the movie Cars, I don't think it gets much credit in the Pixar world. And do you feel like that's true, by the way? I don't personally feel obligated to defend the honor of Cars, but I really did love the movie. Uh, here's why I think that you should like it even more, okay? Because <laughs> if you think about all Pixar movies are like sub-worlds within a human world. Mm-hmm. You know, like like it's about toys, but one of but there's humans, or it's about fish, but there's humans in the world, or it's about monsters, but there's humans in the world. There's no humans in cars. It's just like it's just imagine the world, but like all the people are cars, you know. And so what they've had to do is like, if that world were to exist, then everything would have to have sort of like a hint of car to it. And so their whole mission <laughs> felt like was to come up with as many like puns or like bridges to like what would a what would this world be like if it was just cars? So like in Cars 2, instead of Big Ben, it was Big Bentley, you know? And I mean, th- there's just like it's pun upon pun upon pun. And it's just uh, the whole time I'm just smiling. It's incredible. And so I feel like you missed your calling, Bronwyn. You should have handed in your resume to Pixar and say, I will come up with the puns. Tell tell uh, Steve I quit. I'm going to work <laughs> yeah. for Pixar. <laughs> yeah. I love Steve, it. Steve, you heard it here. Yeah. Uh, also, you should look up later mater's tall tales oh no no yeah shorts that's how it started that's how it started it's because we were like oh let's just watch like a five minute thing Mm -hmm. and so yeah if i'm lying i'm crying that's what he would say (laughs) at the beginning of it and he would come up with mater would come up with these like unbelievable tall tales and we just loved it it was so fun and mason would just sit there transfixed which not feeling great about the screen time but it's like 10 minutes you know yeah, you're okay. We're in the yeah. hours category, dude. Hours. Yeah. yeah. So but, funny about cars, actually, is that, you know, they have the tractor tipping jokes where they go. Oh, so funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like we knew watching that as adults that that was a joke on cow tipping. Oh, cow tipping. Right. Right. And then at some point here, being in Cowtown, uh, someone talked about cow tipping and I needed to explain it to my kids with reference to tractor tipping because That's that, was hilarious. The, that was the origin story for them. Right. <laughs> You know what was hilarious too is uh, – so obviously like in cars, the, the trophy is called the Piston Cup. Mm-hmm. 
and Mater, who is just a transcendent character. I love Mater. But uh, so they're talking about the Piston Cup, and he says, he did what in his cup? (laughs) (laughs) I'd missed it. (laughs) It's unbelievable. I'd love to know how they decide, like, which lines are we going to cross? How can we cross them? How can we make it not actually a joke like that? But to do so, I think that's just it's good stuff. But Mason just sits there and just you know, like points at the TV and just ka ka ka, and it so gets so excited. So it's like we get under a blanket together. It's like the one of the greatest parts of the day. So anyway, I revisit Cars because I feel like it's underrated, and it should be higher in in Pixar lore. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm persuaded. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, quarantine corner from our side is, you know, we have been in the same house with our children for going on 11 months now. It's a long time to be cooped up with the same people, with them having pretty much no peers to visit all of their creative energy on. Right. So kids have taken up pranking. <laughs> pranking. And... Uh, I came upstairs to our bedroom two days ago and there was a challenge taped to the door issued to Jeremy and I that the prank war is on. Are you serious? And there is no declining. Who is the ringleader of this? Uh, my eldest. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, but they are all in. Yeah. They, all three of them are all in. And so I have had my um, computer mouse doctored and um, <laughs> tape put over the little sensor on the back of my Apple mouse, which which after two or three days of occasional efforts to troubleshoot, recharge the battery, disconnect, restart my computer. Well, I kept on like trying it for a minute or two and then thinking, oh, I've got to get onto my meeting. I'll just use the trackpad mouse. I can't troubleshoot this now. But after multiple efforts, I was like, oh, maybe it's run out of power. I'll plug it in and I'll try it again next time. Or, oh, I'll, you know, turn off and turn on the Bluetooth or uninstall it and reinstall it. After three days, I was like, dang it, what is wrong with this mouse? Tape. Tape. <laughs> so so good. then yesterday I walk out of my room after being um, in a Zoom meeting, open up my front door and walk smack face first into cling film that the kids have taped <laughs> as a screen all along the edge of the door. Oh, that's genius. And and I hear So you walked into it, like uh your face hit it? Yeah, because it's right there, like right in front of me. And I hear one of them yell, Yo, we got her! And the other one yells, I told you we should have put honey on it. (laughs) Oh my god. And Corazon. Yeah, you're living in like a uh, early two thousands, late nineties, like family romp drama where the kids are like taking over the house and it's like they're watching home alone and they're 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 like setting booby traps and this is your life. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally. Yeah. When we, I mean, Home Alone is by far my middle child's favorite movie. But I do feel really, really um, like some parental responsibility when we watch movies like that to keep saying to them, you do understand that would kill a person. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, like this prank. Would be the two, dead. Yeah, yeah, they would be dead. <laughs> like you can't, you can't swing that weight down. <laughs> Down a set of stairs, clonk or someone the, in the face and have them live, right? You can't the, do that. People would die. Like you need to bricks. scale down, yes, your prank expectations here to things that are not going to maim people. Please. Right, right. As a kid, probably the funniest thing that I'd ever seen in my life was at Home Alone 2 when he would ch- when he chucked the bricks down from the top <laughs> of the building and a kick kept hitting him. I thought that there was nothing funnier in the history of mankind than that to me. And every, even if I watch it now, I still, I still, and it's so violent 
and bad it's news. So but violent. Yeah. It is. How well do you know Home Alone 2, by the way? I'm not conversant with lines. I've watched it, but. So when Marv falls and he says, wow, what a hole. Remember that at all? <laughs> I got in a long argument with someone who thought it was, wow, what a home. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I think it's whole. So anyway, if anyone has any, uh, wow, what a hole or wow, what a home opinions, <laughs> love to, love to, love to hear them. That's it for us, Bronwyn. We got to go. It's been good. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. All right, that is it for the episode, and that's it for this little excursus into the questions of whether or not the Bible is sexist. And it's a big topic, it can be a scary topic, and the analysis is not as straightforward as a simple reading of the text. And so I hope that you found this helpful, and if you'd like to talk about it, please feel free to reach out. But I want to thank you, Bronwyn, not only for your sharpness in discussing the text, but for giving us a scope of your journey with this stuff and the vulnerable look into how it's shaping your own marriage. So we wish you good luck in the coming weeks in the prank war with your children. Thank you to Josh Paskey and Scooter King, Kyle Jung, for the music of your pod and your staff. Dare I say it scoots. Is that a thing? And thank you to Mike Loretto for editing our episode with professionalism and kindness. But before we go, College Life, you should know that we love you even more than glasses wearers are longing for a solution to the foggy mask glasses dilemma of 2020. We'll see you next week.